Good morning. Hope everybody's feeling good this morning. This beautiful weekend we've had. Came in here with your Bibles ready to worship. Psalms 39 is where we are this morning as we work our way through the Psalms. Find ourselves in chapter 39. Let us stand in, in honor and reverence for this is the Word of God. This psalm has a heading. It says, To the choir master, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways that I might not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail. And my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths. And my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O oh Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of fools. I was mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my cry, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. This is God's word. And so, Lord, we lay your word before us and ask you to instruct us to help us to give us a hope and a strength, Lord, for we are often in a context just like David is in this psalm. Help us to not waste it. And oh Lord, help us not waste our brief breath of life that you have given to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. And so we start here at the, at the heading because we have one that helps us with a little bit of a context of what's going on. So remember, these are just not words someone has put on a page. This, this whole book was basically the, the song book, the hymn book of God's people. And he had given this psalm in particular to Jeduthun. If you want to see this guy, 
He was a real guy. 1 Corinthians 16.42, we see him used there. It says, Haman and Jeduthun had trumpets and cymbals for the music and instruments for sacred song. God's people have always valued music and worship and have used all kinds of instruments to praise the Lord. And here this man was in charge of leading the worship and he, this was one of the words that he put music to and would sing. So, let's think about this. So think about your life, all of us that have lived a few years. Think of a time when God got your attention. You live long enough, God's going to do that. Something sobering that happened in your life. Something that just caused you to stop and take stock and realize, man, life is short. It's brief, it's delicate, it's fragile. I can't believe this happened or this could, this could happen to me. Do you remember that time in your life? It's where he's at. Psalms 38 and 39 are meant to go together. We went to the same church for 20 years before we planted here. And I've mentioned this before. One of the benefits from staying in a church as you grow is you get to be a part of other people's growth and you get to see them grow. We were at some kind of event the other day and some guy went by that was married and I realized that Christina and I taught him in the four-year-old class at Parkwood. It's old, married. I think he even had his own set of gray hair. And I'm sitting there going, that just makes you sit there and think, man, that was just, that was just a breath ago. What happens when we forget this reality? Sin, that's what happens. We live for the now. And for God's people, I've got good news. Our Father's not okay with it. So He's going to engage His own people. We call this discipline. Talked about this last week, Psalms 38. David has sinned and God has brought a physical infirmity in his life to get his attention. Now in Psalms 39... He's still under some kind of discipline. And we asked ourselves, what should I do in the midst of this? That's what David's doing. He's fighting for faith and relief. And it was amazing. So the students and I looked at Ecclesiastes. I'm sitting there going, this is the same. He's Solomon struggling with the same thing that his daddy did. Has a tendency to waste his life living for the now. You can study through Ecclesiastes. You see the account of an old man who's looking back and realize he wasted the sweetest days of his life. So, how are we going to respond under God's discipline? That's the point of our text today. There's only two ways that you're going to respond or have responded in the past and that we will respond in the future, either in humility or in pride. You're either going to bow up in rebellious pride or you're going to come to God in broken humility. There are only two responses. 
So the good news this morning is in Hebrews 12. We looked at this last week. Let's remind ourselves. Because you see, when, we're, when God gets our attention, however He does it, it's important for us to know that he had told, He's told us that He's got a goal, He's got a purpose. Hebrews 12.10 We are reminded by an earthly father that good earthly fathers discipline their children in love. And using that as an example, he said, For they, earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our what? Good, profit. That we may share in his what? Holiness. True love is a tough love. It's what David's experiencing. He's written songs about it. God's tough love. But his motivation is always the same. It's to be holy. As New Testament believers, we say that's to be like Christ. Quote, Real love seeks the highest and best in the one who is loved. Say that again. Real love seeks the highest and best in the one who is loved. So as David is under the disciplined hand of God, a few things we can learn from the text today. David is quiet. He's quiet around the right people, around the wrong people, and knows where he must first go to in the midst of this. When God gives our attention, he is silent among some people, but he goes to God and he prays. And what he does is acknowledges some things. My life is brief. Then he's honest with God about his sin and and about his desire for this discipline to be over. That's what we want to look at today. So let's first notice David's silent. Verse 1. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. Listen, this is imp- the context of this is important. So long as the wicked are in my presence. So David's under his own adversity. God has gotten his attention. What he said is, I'm going to put a muzzle, a restraint over my mouth, lest I voice my concern, my confusion, and my frustration over what God's doing to me among wicked people. So why does he say that? You know what's amazing about the Psalms and the the wisdom text is how influential they are. James, you might want to find James, you might want to mark it, because we're going to flip back to James several times James was highly influenced by wisdom literature. And it seems like he was highly influenced maybe by this particular psalm. James 1, 19 and 20 says, that, says this. Remember, James writing to believers. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So David, in the midst of his distress, of the disciplined hand of God in his life, is careful to guard himself around the wicked people. Why does he do that? Because 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The unspiritual man cannot understand the things of God. They're foolishness. Don't you hear that? Atheist Richard Dawkins said, called the cross that we just got through singing about, cosmic child abuse. 
So you voice your concern about what God is doing in your life to those who know not Christ that are outside the covenant. He said, it's just going to be misconstrued. You see, the book of Psalms was the hymn book for God's people, not the world's. The world cannot understand what God is doing among his children's life. It seems to be unfair. If God is in charge, why don't he just stop it? But if God's about producing holiness in his people, does not a sovereignly good, perfect, holy God know how to produce it? God's people say yes. But the world says, I don't get that. In other words, the point, quite honestly, this first point, is be careful who you lament to. God's glory is at stake. When you type that on social media this afternoon about what you're going through, before you hit the enter button, you realize God's glory is at stake. He gives us a person who we're supposed to first go to, and He gives us a body of Christ who we must go to, and the world does not understand it. And they have nothing to offer to God's covenant people that can help us know how we are to respond to our God. We go to Him, and we don't go to them. This has implications for how we deal with it when we're under the burden of God's getting our attention. And here's the reality. Look at verse 2 and 3. It didn't go away because He was silent. Because he did the right thing and not go to his lost buddy and say, I can't understand what God's doing here. It didn't go away. It grew. Verse 2, I was mute and silent. I held my peace. Look, to no avail. My distress grew worse. Burned within me as I mused. Fire burned. Interesting. Do you know why you go to an amusement park? Because muse means to meditate, to think strongly about. We go to a amusement park because a means not. We go to one because we don't want to think. But probably if we were thinking, sunrise wouldn't even get on. Right? We go on there so that we can just take a break from the meditation. He said muse meaning he was meditating. The more he, he held it in, the worse it got. Spurgeon. Silence is an awful thing for a sufferer. Mourner, tell your sorrow. Listen. Do it first and most fully to God. But even to pour it out before some wise, godly friend is far from being wasted breath. You see where we don't lament to and who we do lament to. So he comes here to this so what does he do? He prays. We, I'm going to keep hitting this because we're, we can oftentimes be a prayerless people and we know it. David prays in the midst of this. He spoke, get alone with God and pray. Lament to Him. And so David's acknowledging some things, but I want you to understand he's doing it in the context of prayer. David's acknowledging his life was just a mere breath. Before the Lord. In comparison to Him. In contrast to eternity. This is what we're doing. We're praying in the midst of our verse. Oh Lord. Verse 4. Make me know the end of my days. What is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. 
Spurgeon again says, If my swelling heart must speak, Lord, let it speak to thee. You see, discipline in your life and my life brings clarity. Because the world and what it has to offer us in the now muddies up the very purpose of why we are here. So discipline brings clarity. Oh Lord, help me know these things. He's saying it. I know it in here, God. But I must not know it in here because my actions are telling me what I believe. Brings clarity. Behold. Verse 5. It's an important word. Behold. You have made my days a few. A hand's breath. Psalms 90. A couple pages back. Psalms 90 verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days. Why? That we may get a heart of wisdom. My life is short, God. Help me understand that. Remember, sin has brought discipline. Discipline has brought a time of reflection in his life. Lamenting, understanding. This is God. Help me understand. I'm only here for a short amount of time. Just what Solomon is telling youth. We looked at that Ecclesiastes 11 and 12 with the students. It says, enjoy your life, young people. Your life is a breath. Enjoying it. How do we enjoy it? By living in light of our Creator who knows what, how life is to be enjoyed. Take man at the best day. Take man who lives the longest. It's just a breath. He calls it a hand's breath. A hand breath. You know what that is? It's four fingers. Smallest linear measurement at that time. That's how they... Two hands breath. That's about... They, that's approximately in their linear measurement was about two inches. But that's what they meant when they said hand's breath. Four fingers. So that's your life. Why is he saying that? Because when you're under the disciplined hand of God, it doesn't feel like that long. <laughs> it feels like two miles long. So he says, Lord, help me understand. It's this long. Why? Because it don't feel that long. I've spent a good part of my first part of my time under this just asking you to stop it. Remove the consequences of my sin. I didn't realize my sin is against you. That you had a point to it. It's like he's writing this to Americans. Our self-confident, do it my way, we can do anything if we set our mind to it kind of way. And God gets your attention to help you know your life's this long. It's this long. What does he have to do? Look at verse 5. He must contrast his life before God's. My days are a few hands breath. It is as nothing before you. You are eternal. Ecclesiastes 12.1 tells students to enjoy your life. 
And remember your Creator, for He made you, and He knows how it is to be enjoyed. The only way you can gain your perspective back is to contrast yourself before an infinite, sovereign, holy God of which our existence dwarfs in comparison to Him. Verse 6, end of verse 6 says, Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather it. He spends his whole life saving and saving and saving, and then he dies and leaves it to his kids to squander. Our busy lives gives us meaning and status and wealth, and then we are gone at a moment. Reminded me of Laura came in. We had a couple of birthdays this week, this weekend, and we went out into the edge of the woods. There's an old barn out there. Used to be a nice barn. But about 20 years ago, it started to fall in, and now it's just a heap. We went out there, and we used to see where the chicken coop used to be, we used to actually, when I was younger, when first got the property, we had stuff in that barn. There was a man who used to feed his chickens, keep his feed, plant his garden. And what is it now? It's a heap of rotten wood. This is, this is our life. It is brief. We, just not, we need to understand this morning how we are supposed to live it. That's what David is learning. James says this to Christians. James 5 verse 1. That accumulating wealth is only fattening yourself up for the slaughter. To live this life in simply trying to amass wealth. Just fattening yourself up before the slaughter. I love the rope illustration. Have you ever seen it? Francis Chan uses it in the sermon sometimes. And he paints a picture of get a rope and imagine the rope goes, goes down the steps, out the door, and all the way to Cherubil. Here's what he says. If you, if you take that rope and you paint the end of it a couple inches red, that's your life. The rest of it's your life too. It's your eternal life. And listen to me today. God cares how you live that part of your life. If God rewards His own children and tells us that our reward is based off how we live for His glory in this life and it determines how we will glorify Him and enjoy Him for the rest of that rope, then should not we learn how we must live this life? That's what he's saying. And that's what discipline teaches us as his children. So he's learning that through life, through the discipline, through the sins and mistakes. David then asked for something. He asked for deliverance from sin. And, and listen... He wants the discipline to stop. Look where he starts. It's the turning point. Like we see it, we see a climax and a turning point in every song. Verse 7. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? See his question? It's, 
It's a good thing when you start asking yourself questions. It's really a good thing when you begin to ask God the right questions. We've said this before. Someone asks you a question, unless they start in the right place, you can't get there from here. Why does God do bad things to good people? It's the wrong place to start. If there's no one good but God, isn't that where we should start? So he asked the right questions here. Now, for what do I wait? In other words, he's gotten to this point where he says, Lord, I only have one hope in this life. It's you. Psalms 40 is coming, brothers and sisters. Well, God's going to lift him up out of this. But he's in it right now. And where he says is, Lord, I will wait on you. Spurgeon again explained and says, you have to get to a point in your life where everything else in this life other than the Lord is simply disgusting in, com- in contrast to it. Now we're ready to learn. Now we're ready to see who the Lord is and press in to know him. And so he says, Lord, deliver me from my sin. And notice something with sin. Verse 8. Sin always comes with shame. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Verse 8. Do not make me a scorn of the fools. Sin always produces shame. He wants delivered and preserved from both. I want to be forgiven. and I don't want this held against me. Remember? His friends shunned him and his enemies attacked him. They do the same thing to us. He says, Lord, I'll wait on you, but oh Lord, preserve me, deliver me from not only the, my sin that I keep falling into, but the shame that comes right after. And people love to remember the bad things you do far better than the good, don't they? Praise God for the cross. Well, the Lord never brings your sin up to you. When He delivers us, why He longs for it. When He delivers us from our sin, God don't bring it back up to you again. Our Father does not motivate us with shame and guilt. It's what bad fathers do. James 4, 7-9 tells God's church they must get to the same place. Submit yourselves To the Lord, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Listen to verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Why? Because he wants joy for you. Brokenness over your sin is meant to produce joy in your life. Joy eternal. So he prays, deliver me from my sin, from the shame. And look at verse 10. This is practical. Remove your stroke from me. In other words, Lord, remove your disciplined hand. Look at the second line of verse 10. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. Yes, God is doing this to his own. For their holiness. And he says, Lord, I'm, I'm just done. I'm undone with this. I'm about done. So 
So deliver me. My life is fleeting and you determine how long and how I'm supposed to live it. Lord, don't let it be spent in discipline. Practically, you know what he's saying? I get it, God. <laughs> so can you, can you take it away now? I understand. I understand I've been living for the now and not living for you and I'm going to wait on you, but oh God, would you take it away now? Job prayed the same thing. It's important because if you look down, you look back and at the end of Psalms 39 here, you can get confused. Because verse 13 says, look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. You could say, does he just want God to get away from him? What he's praying for is for God to relent his disciplined hand. In other words, you've got to understand some of Job's prayer conversations to really understand this. Job 7, verse 16 says this, I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone. Saying this to the Lord. Let me alone for my days are a breath. What is man that you make so much of him? And that you set your heart on him? Visit him every morning and test him every moment. How long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone? He's praying for God and his disciplined hand to be removed from him. So how are we supposed to respond? How, how, do, we, how do we understand this? How do we apply it into our life? How should we respond when God gets your attention? It's not in your notes. But if God ever gets your attention, it's one of the first things you should do is praise the Lord because God has got your attention. The worst thing in your life that God can ever do is leave you to yourself. God to His own leans into our life. I can remember this. My own life, we all have at least one, sometimes multiple in our lives that we can remember. I was a 60 to 70 hour a week working man. And I loved to work. My whole identity was bound up in work. Until one day God gave me something that stopped me. And gave me a time of reflection. And oftentimes, what that reveals in your life. And what God is doing is uncovering your idol. Your idol is where you get your identity. It's where you, what you ascribe worth and value to ultimately in your life. By the time you spend and the money that you use. And so what do we do when God gets our attention? We should first assume that it's our perspective that's skewed, not God's. We are contingent, fragile creatures who cannot take ourselves out of our own experience. And God is infinite, omniscient, and good. And when something happens in our life, we first need to assume that it's my perspective that's the problem. That's a pretty good starting point. But then understand this. What David is doing here practically, and he puts it to song so that God's people can know that you can be honest with God. You can be frustrated with the Lord. I mean, isn't that sort of good news? He's not being irreverent. That's why he guards his mouth. Not being irreverent. If he wasn't out there, 
he would be. He's coming to the Lord and says, Lord, I want to know you through this time. I want to understand why you're doing what you're doing and why don't you stop, God? We should come humbly and honestly, yet reverently, and cry out to the Lord and cry out to Him first. For what? Both forgiveness and mercy. Sometimes when this is happening to us, we don't even know why it's happening. And we don't. Sometimes it's not about you. <laughs> it's about someone who's following you. Would we not as parents give our lives for our children if it meant that they would know Christ? We are all the family of God, adopted into the same family. And He means for all of us to be holy. He's doing something. But it's okay not to understand what He's doing. And to just humbly, humbly cry out to Him for mercy and forgiveness and understanding and patience. But in the midst of this, not just after, in the midst of this, we have to make some resolves. We looked at this Wednesday too. I'm excited. We've got a in second week in April. We're going to open up Wednesdays and we're going to begin to study how to study our Bible. That's what we've been doing in, together with our students. We looked at Jonathan Edwards a little bit at the end of our time. Jonathan Edwards made resolves. And he lived by those. Listen to this one he lived by. Resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can with all the power, might, vigor, vehemence, yea, violence I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. Where is he trying to achieve happiness? Ultimately in the other world. You see, he's living this life, but he's living in light of eternity. That's what he's telling us. There's a good perspective here in the end of Psalms 39 and verse 12. We should resolve to use the gift of life for the Lord Jesus Christ and to him alone, no matter what it cost me or listen, parents, listen, grandparents, no matter what it cost my children. Yes, following Christ will affect your family. It always does. Listen to what he says. In verse 12, For I am a sojourner with you, a guest, just like my fathers were. Do you see everything you have is not really yours anyway? You say, I worked hard for my house. The Lord says, not yours. I worked hard for my position in my work. The Lord says it's not really yours. I got, I got a nice piece of property. The Lord says it's not really yours. What do you have, old man, that you did not receive? We received it all. Leviticus 25-23 tells God's people that you're a guest on my land. There's a perspective changer, isn't it? We're accountable 
for how we use what God's given us. And the most precious thing he's given you is the breath of life. I told the students, and I'll say it to you, you're just not going to be judged for what you do wrong. We're going to be judged because we don't enjoy life. And we teach our children not to enjoy it either. We teach our children that we need to study and, and save. And one day when you get old, you'll be able to enjoy it. Here comes Solomon that says, are you crazy? Well, Solomon says, you've got to be crazy. He said, I got old. My teeth fell out. My eyes quit working. I can't hear. I'm hunched over. I can't even enjoy food anymore. I don't have a sex drive. That's what he said in Solomon. I'm not making it up. He's saying, God's your creator, young people. Enjoy him now. God knows how we should live, and we should live it for him. Sounds like something Jesus said. Matthew 6, 19, he says, Don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. Our growth group lesson says what God is doing in your life right now is producing an eternal weight of glory beyond what you can imagine. And so we must trust Him. But don't miss this today. We're New Testament Christians. We have the word that Jesus gave us when He stood up on a mountain. After He chose a small group of people and lived in relationship with those people to show them how to follow Christ and then got up on a mountain and says, all authority has been given to me. Now you go do the same. Spend your life helping other people follow Jesus. And if you don't, you will waste your life. And if you do, whether you spend it on a trash back of a trash truck or a neurosurgeon, you will have made me look great. So are we going to waste it or not? It's the parable of the steward today. God gives you what He gives you. Some one, some two, some four, some ten. What are you going to do with it? Because to bury your life in the earthly ground and love of this world is to waste it. Every person that you help know how to follow Christ produces an eternal weight of glory. Do you believe that? If so, let us practice Hebrews 12. Hebrews 11, God's people have been laid out before them. The men and women and children of faith who gave their very lives and none of their lives looked exactly the same. And having laid that out for him in Hebrews 12 verse 1 says, Therefore, because of this, since we have been surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. May, may we not grow weary and faint-hearted as we live this very precious life to help other people follow Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you love us enough to correct us. 
And Lord, there's not a believer in the room that wants to waste the life that you've given us. And yet, Lord, we confess we don't know how much longer you've given us. You might be 15 in the room, Lord, and you may have said that their breath of life is tomorrow, Lord. I don't know, and you, you haven't told us. You tell us to live for you, to enjoy the day that you've given us, to not take it for granted, to not waste our life simply trying to amass wealth. So, Lord, now we go out. We're about to give here in just a minute. Not only here as, the, as we take up to take care of the family, the body of Christ here, but then as we go out and we're going to spend our time, we're going to spend our money, we're going to spend our resources on something today. Lord, as we live this week, will you help us apply this word? We understand our life is short. We want to spend it for your glory. You have told us how we should do that. May we give ourselves to it, Lord. To know you and to make you known. Be patient with each other as we stumble around in the path of righteousness. Oh, Lord, would you be glorified now as we stand and sing, as we give, and then as we go. Let's stand and worship.